0: God has given us the Holy Spirit. We are not only indwelt by God the Holy Spirit, but at the moment of salvation we are filled with the Holy Spirit. However, when we sin, although we do not lose the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we do, the Scripture says, quench the Spirit or grieve the Spirit. As a result, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit. And that is recovered only through confession of sin. We confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin our teaching every class with a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we are indeed in fellowship if we need to be and prepared for teaching God's Word. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we do thank you for the wonderful privilege and opportunity we have this morning to gather together as a body of believers to study your Word. Father, the things that we are going to look into this week, as every week, as we look into Your Word, are things that You have taken the time and the effort to reveal to us under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit through the writers of Scripture, and You have preserved for us down through the ages. So, Father, as we take this time to study Your Word, we pray that we can understand these things, that as we evaluate the Scriptures, that God the Holy Spirit would not only make them clear to us, but that we would see how they apply to our lives, and they would be stored in our souls for future use. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We continue our study this morning of Jesus' discussion with religious leader of Israel called Nicodemus. We began this back in verse 1. In fact, it, this conversation extends down through. The question is, how far does it extend, and when does Jesus stop talking and John st- start talking? We will look at that issue this morning. Jesus begins his conversation. We're told in 3.1 there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is one of the members of the Sanhedrin. He's a wealthy aristocrat of Israel, and he is a man who is deeply concerned with his uh, eternal destiny in heaven. And as a Pharisee, he's concerned, we know, about his own personal righteousness. And the Pharisees had taken not only the 615 commandments in the Mosaic Law, but they had expanded those through their traditions into many, many more uh, commands and details. And it had, in fact, become a burden not only on themselves, but on the people to try to keep all these laws. That if they would just keep these laws, be consistent in following these laws, then they could enter into heaven. But something gnaws at the very soul of Nicodemus. The doubting question, is my righteousness really good enough to get me into the kingdom of heaven? So when Jesus comes along, we see in John chapter 2 that Jesus came to the temple, and there he presents himself, or he is presented to the nation, and presents his credentials as Messiah, cleanses the temple kicks the money changers out, and performs many miracles. This creates quite a stir in Jerusalem. He is the subject of conversation from the lowliest person in town to the highest halls of justice. And so when Nicodemus comes to him, he says, We know that you have come from God as a teacher. How does he know that? He knows that because it is clear to him that no one can do what Jesus did unless God is with him. And he knows that these signs that Jesus has performed, these miracles, are his credentials, that he establishes who he is as a Messiah. But yet, Nicodemus hasn't come to a point of trusting in Christ yet. He has many questions, and so he comes to discuss these with Jesus at night. And so we get that rare opportunity to look at a conversation between Jesus and an unbeliever. I mean, how many times have we sat down at one point or another to explain the gospel to an unbeliever, and we feel so inadequate at times, and we're not sure what all the answers are, and we're afraid they're going to ask us a question that will stump us, and we're not sure all the answers, and we don't really want to be taken as a as some kind of religious fanatic, but, so we're we're uncertain. And here we have for us not only an example of what to say, but a methodology is presented to us in sort of an outline form. Jesus begins by making the gospel clear, and we saw that under the heading of the doctrine of regeneration back in verse 3. Jesus specifically and authoritatively states to Nicodemus, no one can get into the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And we saw that the problem there stems from the fact that man is born with a human body and a human soul. But he lacks a human spirit. Adam and Eve were originally created with a human spirit. The human spirit is that immaterial, and I'm going to draw it here with a dotted line, it is that immaterial part of man which interacts with his human soul, which is made up of self-consciousness, mentality, emotion, volition, and conscience. This we have. It's been tainted by the sin nature. But at the moment of Adam's sin, he lost his human spirit. human spirit is that immaterial element which gives his soul the capacity to understand spiritual things and to have a relationship and rapport with God. When we use the term born again or regeneration, we have to ask, what is born? Well, it's not the body. That's not born again. That was Nicodemus' assumption. And it's not the soul. It is this human spirit, that which gives the soul the ability, the capacity to have a relationship with God and understand spiritual things. Nicodemus thinks of it. We saw physically. How can a man, once he is old, enter into his mother again? And Jesus clarifies. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, first he says, born again. And we saw that the Greek word translated again is anothen, which has two meanings. John wants to emphasize both. One is the idea of again, a second birth, and one is the idea of above, that its source is in God. Jesus then expands that. He says, not only do you have to be born again, let me give you a little clarification. Verse 5, he says, it needs, you need to be born of water and the Holy Spirit. Water speaks of cleansing from sin. Man's problem, not only, not only is it that he lacks positive righteousness, but he has accrued sin. So there has to be a cleansing from sin, the application of the atonement, and that he has to have a birth by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it is God the Holy Spirit who creates a human spirit and imparts that simultaneously to the human being at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Nicodemus begins to question this. It doesn't fit his preconceived notions. He comes to, as every human being does, he comes to the whole issue with certain presuppositions. And we saw in Romans chapter one that man's basic presupposition is negative to God. That man, uh many men, the suppressed the truth of God. They know God exists and they suppress it. Those who are, even those who are positive and we know that ultimately Nicodemus is positive because he becomes a believer, but he has become mired in religious activity. And so his authority, his ultimate authority is the traditions of men. Human systems of authority. And we saw that man has basically two systems of authority. One is rationalism And the second is empiricism. In rationalism, man says that ultimately logic and human reason can arrive at ultimate eternal truth. Empiricism says that it comes through experience. We saw that the next move Jesus makes, first move is he makes the issue clear. You must be born again. Then when Nicodemus begins to waffle because he doesn't understand it, Jesus confronts his underlying presuppositions. He challenges his thought. He says, Nicodemus, you're basing all of your thinking on a combination of empiricism and rationalism. But all humanity is in a box. You're limited. Ultimately, logic is limited. Logic comes in two forms. Deductive logic, inductive logic. Deductive logic falls apart because... Ultimately, your premises are based on first principles which are assumed. Inductive logic gets you nothing more than probability. Under empiricism, we saw that man is limited. He can only see things down to a certain um, certain smallness, certain minutia. With the aid of instruments, he can go a little further. And he's limited at the top by how large an object he can view. He's limited in terms of what he... Um, what he can experience in time by the length of his own life. And that can be expanded by the eyewitness accounts of history. But even that is limited. So man is in a box. He's limited. And, it's, and he's trying to figure out information about God, information about the God of the Bible, and the God who created the heavens and the earth. Yet God is outside the box. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, in effect, Nicodemus, you are inside the box. No man has gone from inside the box out. But the Son of Man, He has come from heaven to earth, from outside the box, so I can speak authoritatively about God and about how to get to God because I come from outside the box. It's not a circular argument. Jesus is claiming to be the God of the universe. And He uses a very important technical term, which we will see, which is the title, Son of Man. We concluded last week by looking at what the Bible says about human knowledge and the limitations of human knowledge and that the starting point Jesus' starting point is himself because he is God and the starting point of the Apostle Paul in witnessing to the Gentiles in Acts 14 and Acts 17 is the God who made heaven and earth. The starting point is not human reason. Somehow we sit, want to sit down and talk to an unbeliever. We want to try to find some area of common ground. So let's appeal to logic. Let's appeal to human experience. Let's appeal to historical facts. And we have seen that these are not in themselves neutral. They are always interpreted by someone so that even if we get them to admit something on the order of the resurrection, they will then go to their presupposition which says that ultimately reality is controlled by chance. So, anything can happen in a world controlled by chance. That's where we left it. Jesus is arguing, first of all, I I want to build this for you. He presents the gospel, you must be born again. Then he demolishes Nicodemus' presuppositional base. He says, You're coming. you want to come to eternal truth on the basis of reason and empiricism, and it won't work. There's a third way of knowing, and that is when someone from outside the box comes in, he speaks authoritatively, And you respond by accepting it as true. That's what faith is. In fact, faith is not something that is unique here. That's why, and I've struggled with this in the way I've taught this over the years, we say that man has three systems of knowing. Often it's taught this way, that there's rationalism, empiricism, and faith. Right? That's how we've often seen it. It's really not that way. This is a misconception. It's really rationalism, empiricism, and authority. Because in rationalism, what have I said already? Rationalism, you look at logic. You've got two kinds of logic, deductive and inductive. Deductive logic goes back to you build a major premise, minor premise, and conclusion. Where do you get your major and minor premises? Ultimately, you push it back far enough, every philosopher goes to what they call first principles, things that are uh, self-evident, assumptions. Okay, What's your basis for saying that that assumption is true. Ultimately, it's faith. Same thing is true in empiricism. What are you trusting? You're trusting in human experience to be able to, to define what truth is. So, faith is operational at the very core level of both reason and empiricism. The object is what differs. in Under authority, the object is the self-authenticating Word of God. Now, what do I mean by self-authenticating Word of God? I want to build your confidence in the power of Scripture. What is it that Paul says in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It, the gospel, this is the power of God. We went to Luke 16 last time, and the, the story that Jesus told, and it is not a parable. Parables don't give proper names to people. In this story, the people have names. There's the beggar named Lazarus. And then there's the unnamed rich man. They both die. Lazarus goes to Abraham's bosom, paradise. The, the rich man is not a believer and he goes to torments. Prior to the resurrection, Hades or Sheol, as it's called in the Old Testament, comprised of two compartments. Parad- what is called paradise or Abraham's bosom, which is where the saved went. And a place of torments where the unsaved went in between the pictures. There's a great gulf between them. And in the story, Jesus tells, he looks across, the rich man looks across and sees Lazarus, who was the beggar outside of his gates all the time he was on earth. And he is in torment and he says, says, calls to Abraham and he says, Abraham, let that, let Lazarus go, let him go back to earth so he can tell my five brothers. The reality of eternal condemnation. What, what, what did Abraham say? He said, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they will not believe empirical data provided by anybody, no matter how miraculous it is. That is a powerful statement. Because what, they, what Jesus is saying is the Word of God itself carries its own authority. Because the issues are ultimately spiritual. And God said in Isaiah, My word will not go forth void, but will accomplish what I intended to. God's word has power. It is self-authenticating. It is not that the unbeliever is not convinced. Romans 1 says that he knows, both inside of him and from the external witness of creation, that God exists. But if he is negative to God's word, He is actively, it's an active voice verb, he is suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. The issue is not, if you're witnessing to somebody, that you haven't presented the case clearly. The issue is not that you haven't presented the rational evidence. The issue is not history or reason or science or any of those factors. The issue is rejection or acceptance of God. It comes down to volition. And the Word of God carries its own authentication with it. That's why Jesus can say, Verily, verily, I say unto you, We speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. Now, having shown, given the Gospel, number one, stated the the presuppositional fallacies in Nicodemus' thinking, which is, which is the, the problem with all human viewpoint thinking, Jesus goes on to present the issue, the, a classic illustration of the issue of faith and authority. And that we find in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. Are we getting some feedback from... Oh, it's the answering machine. Okay. Somebody's going to take care of that. John 3.14 is a reference to Numbers 21. Numbers 21. So let's turn there in the Old Testament and see what Jesus is talking about. Numbers 21. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book in the Old Testament. Numbers relates the wanderings of the Exodus generation in the wilderness. Historical background. Here's a timeline. Right here, 1446 B.C., the Exodus occurred. God miraculously brought the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, and He brought them Mount Sinai. They were there for a year. So, from 1446 to 1445, remember this is BC, so you count backwards, 1445 there at Sinai. At Sinai, they they see all kinds of of, of, uh, evidences of God's presence on the mountain. They hear the voice of God such that if you had your uh, tape recorder with you, you could record the very voice of God It's objective, it's real, it's not subjective impression. In fact, it's so real that they can't stand it. They say, Moses, we don't want God to talk to us anymore. It's just, it's too convicting, Lord. You go up there and you get it from Him and bring it to us. And so Moses brings down the tablets of the law and then they head to Canaan. God's going to give them the land. Outside the land of Canaan, let me see, I think I have a map here that will show this. Outside the land of Canaan, they come up here to an area that is located just about at the end. This is this is uh, Israel. Here's uh, Jerusalem right here. This is the Dead Sea here. And in this southern area, just almost off the map, about where my pointer is, if you can see that at the very bottom, would be where Kadesh Barnea is located, the gateway into the promised land of Canaan. And they send out their spies to check out the land and to see how they're going to attack it. They misread their operations order. They thought they were going to see if they could take the land, not how to take the land. And they went in and they saw, like I said, by the fortified cities and there are giants in the land and the people are numerous. And Moses said, "You missed. you missed it. Only two of you got it right. And because you have doubted God's ability to conquer the enemy and the nation, everybody reacted, and everybody uh, panicked, and decided they couldn't do it. God said, "Because you are rebellious, you will not enter into the promised land." And the discipline is that this generation must die off, and they must all die except for Joshua and Caleb, the only two of the spies that were faithful and felt and, and believed and trusted God to give them the uh, give them the land. Because of that, this for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness, which is just off the bottom of the map. Now, we're at the end of those 40 years. Most of that generation is dead. That generation was a generation of believers. They are carnal believers, they are disobedient believers, they are rebellious believers, but they were mostly believers. And they' are going to go through the last bit of divine discipline in chapter 21 where we pick up the story. They set out from Mount Hor, look at 21.4. They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. So Edom is this area just here at the lower edge of the map. And there's, they're going to the south of Edom, just off the map. This was the best I could do in terms of a map to give you a little orientation. They're going south of this area. They're swinging around because the Edomites and Moabites wouldn't let them come through their land. So they're having to circle around and go up on this eastern side in the desert and then come in uh, due east after they circle around Moab and they'll come in near Jericho where they'll cross the um, Jordan. The people became tired. They continued to complain and grumble. Now, I find that it's helpful to get a little perspective on this. See, most of us in our limited mentality, when we think about Moses and the Israelites, we have this picture of maybe if, if our minds are, are, have the capacity, maybe we, we envision a lot of people, 1,000, 2,000, maybe 5,000 people. According to the genealogies and numbers, there were about 700,000 men of military Age. That means from about the age of, of uh, 14 on up, there were about 700,000 males. Well, if there's one woman and one child for every male, then you've got 2.1 million Jews. If they had more children than that per adult male, then there could be as many as 4 million Jews. So what we're looking at Think about New London County here. We've got a population of about 275,000. Ten times as many people as live in this county are wandering through Sinai under the leadership, and and they're all rebellious. Not, not they're they're all griping and complaining the whole way. They don't like the food. They don't like the service. I mean, the, they don't have flight attendants, but they have camel attendants or something like that. And and they're just getting harassed day in and day out because it's the same old food. God, once again, you just provide this sort of tasty little wafer, but after 40 years, 365 days a year, it's a little boring. And there's always just enough water, but we don't know that there's enough for tomorrow, and we're not really trusting you. So the people are griping and complaining, and Moses had has to take care of all their problems and all their complaints. Now, this is like as many people as live in the greater Houston metropolitan area. And and Moses, what an administrative task. What a leadership challenge to move that large number of people through, through the wilderness, through the desert in this area. So we're not talking about just a few. And they would cover, just think about how much space. I mean, we're not talking high-rise buildings here. They don't have high-rise tents. So they're spread out. So they're covering an enormous space area of square mile. I don't know what that would be, but but they, they, they're covering quite an area. And that's important for what's going to happen. <coughs> so the people start complaining. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Moses, the only reason you got us out of there, the only reason God got us out of there is he's going to kill us out here. We want to go home. So for 40 years, they've been griping and complaining that they want to go back to the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. They wanted that good culinary experience that they had back there, not this food that's the same day in and day out. There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Notice the contradiction that is always there in carnality. First they say there's no food, then they say it's miserable food. They can't quite make up their mind. We have no food and it's miserable. And and so the Lord gets fed up and He's going to discipline them one more time. And he sends fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the interesting thing here is that with this large number of people in this large expanse, all of a sudden they wake up in the morning and they're in an area that is just infested with snakes. Hundreds, if not thousands of snakes. There would have to be hundreds of thousands of these snakes to deal with two to three million people. So, first of all, you're dealing with a kind of snake. We ought to ask the question, what kind of snake is this? The text doesn't help us a whole lot because it uses the Hebrew word nahash. Looks like this in the Hebrew, if I can find a pen that hasn't dried up on me. Looks like this. N-A-H-A-S-H. Now, this is going to be important. This is the generic term for snake. So, for one thing, the Holy Spirit isn't making a big issue out of the kind of snake. Now, we know one thing, that it's not a pethen. This is another word for snake. Pethan. P-E-T-H-E-N. And that is normally translated asp or cobra. That's the word for the Egyptian cobra, and that's not evident here. In fact, the Egyptian cobra did not live in this area that we're talking about. So, it's not a cobra. There are four various kinds of vipers, four types of vipers that inhabit this part of the world. And the most likely of the four to have been this this viper is the carpet or saw-scaled viper. It's known to exist from Africa all the way across to Southwest Asia and Northern India. And in one area of Kenya a few years ago, over 7,000 were caught and then released for research purposes. Now, why anybody would re- want to catch and release a poisonous snake is far beyond my ability to understand, but they did. so. And then at another time, within a six-year period, within recent history, over 200,000 were killed in one small area in India. So it's very possible. Here's a type of snake that exists in incredible numbers. So it would fit the, uh, the profile of the snake in Numbers 21. Further, it is a serpent that has one of the most powerful venoms of any viper, and it's also a snake that is very easily provoked. It's not going to run and hide when you get out of your uh, sleeping bag in the morning in your tent in the desert. It's going to hear you move and take offense and come get you. And that's exactly what happened. Israelites are waking up in the morning and they're popping out of their cots and their sleeping bags and putting their feet on the floor feeling something squirm and then they're bit. Just like that. All over the camp it's happening. There are, the, the camp is filled with snakes. Go outside and you just see a writhing mass everywhere. There's hundreds of thousands of these vipers everywhere. Now the venom of this carpet viper, the saw-scaled viper. It's called saw-scaled because the scales are so rough that when it moves over the grass, you can hear it. It creates a very rough grating sound. Its venom is hemolytic. It affects the blood, breaks down the capillaries, and ruptures the corpuscles, thereby causing death through massive and widespread hemorrhaging all over the body. It is usually a slow death that can take as long as four days to occur. Now, if you had a cobra bite, you're going to be dead within 30 seconds to 2 or 3 minutes. By the time you realize you've been bit by a cobra, well, it's just too late. But this fits the profile also because we know that the text says that a number of people in Israel died, but then there's going to be a divine solution to the problem. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord. Here's a little repentance going on, change of mind confession of sin. It's time for them to rebound and get back with the program. We have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, notice the divine solution here. Make a fiery serpent. Now, it's called the fiery serpent not because it was a snake of fire, but because the venomous bite burned. It it continued and it had an inflammation with it that made it fiery. So it refers to the impact of the of the bite. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. Now, it's going to take a little while to cast a bronze serpent. Bronze is made of a mixture of copper and tin. So you have to melt down the metals and you have to cast this serpent, mount it on the staff and set it up. And that's going to take um, more than just two or three minutes. So it's going to take a little time. Well, if the people can last a few hours or a couple of days before they die from this, then it fits the profile. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. So the issue is faith. Nicodemus, the issue throughout the Old Testament is not rationalism, it's not empiricism, it's not legalism, it's not ritual, it's not religion. It is faith in the authority of God. Let's look at an example in the Old Testament, Nicodemus. We're going to go back to one you're familiar with. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that the rabbis understood this. In the Mishnah, in Tractate Rosh Hashanah 3.8, the rabbis asked, was it possible for the servant, serpent to kill or to make alive? No. But the case is that when the Israelites look upward for help and subject their inclination to the will of their Father in Heaven, they are healed. But when they do not, they perish. Unfortunately, the rabbis couldn't make the connection between the faith exhibited in this Old Testament incident and what was required of salvation. Jesus is pointing out by analogy that the issue is faith in the authority of God, Nicodemus. The issue is not human reason or human experience. Well, let's see what kinds of lessons we can draw from this. First of all, the overriding principle is that the human viewpoint solution is no solution. The divine solution is the only solution. Point number one, in terms of our observations, only God can accurately and correctly define the human problem. Point number two, the greatest problem that man faces is the problem of sin. You see, this word nachesh is used one other time in Scripture. We see that word, if you were a Jew and you were reading this, and you came to this and, and, and came across that word, it would remind you of another Nahash in the Scripture. The Nahash of Genesis chapter 3, when Satan came in the form of a serpent. And it was that serpent sting, so to speak, that brought sin by virtue of the temptation and Adam and Eve's yielding to that temptation and their sin that plunged the human race into the venom, venomous results of sin that will always yield spiritual and physical death. God provides the only solution to the venom of sin. The greatest problem that man faces is the problem of sin. So if God can solve the greatest problem we ever face, then God can solve any other problem that we face. There is no problem you face in life that is too big and too powerful or too evil for God to handle. If God can handle the greatest problem we face, God can handle any other problem. There's no problem in life that you face. There's no struggle. There's no difficulty. There's no heartache that God wasn't aware of billions and billions of millennia ago in eternity past. He knows exactly what those problems were and He has provided the solution through His Word. He can solve the problem at the cross. He can solve the problems of the serpent bites. In the Old Testament, He can solve your problem. The fourth thing we learn is that man constantly tries to develop systems and solutions to solve the problem, but they are inadequate and they don't work. Now, what are some of the solutions that the Israelites could have adopted? Well, first of all, they might have sat down and said, well, let's us get involved in the problem. Let's get involved in the solution here. God, you tell us what the formula is and we'll make the medicine. We'll develop the antidote. We'll get involved. That's not what we find. That's what man often wants to do under the guise of religion. They want to solve the sin problem. God will get involved. We'll bring our offerings, our sacrifices. We'll get involved in ritual. We'll give up. We'll become ascetic. We'll do this and we'll do that. And you bless us. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a tremendous uh, biblical writer of a previous generation, writes, The brewing of potions and the making of salves would have given them all something to do and would have satisfied every natural instinct of the heart to work on behalf of its own cure. But there was nothing of the kind mentioned. They were to cease from human remedies and turn to a divine remedy. The fact that they were not told to make a human remedy is indicative of the greater fact that there is no human remedy for sin. Men have been bitten by the serpent of sin. How are they going to be cured of its bite? There is nothing but death awaiting them as a result of their wound, unless God himself shall furnish a remedy. Men rush around in the fury of human religions, seeking a palliative for sin. They perform all sorts of rites, chastising the flesh, humbling the spirit. They undertake feasts and pilgrimages. Like the man in Israel's camp who refused to look at the bronze serpent, but spent his time brewing concoctions for ameliorating his own conditions, they are carried off to spiritual death through the poison that is in their being. The man who trusts religion instead of looking to Christ will be eternally lost. Not only do men turn to religious solutions to solve the problem of sin, they turn to psychology. Another human viewpoint solution. See, psychology is ultimately based upon empiricism. I don't, we can't go all the way back there on the overhead. It's based on empiricism. My pens keep running out of ink. Based on empiricism. The trouble with empiricism is you might have X amount of data. But as soon as you come up with the next observation, Y, it may completely destroy your conclusions from X data. If you have 1,000 observations and they all fit one pattern and you draw certain conclusions, then the next piece of information you find may destroy your whole system. Empiricism is invalid. Now, that doesn't mean that they might make some good observations. As my father wisely says, a stopped watch is right twice a day. Think about it. Human viewpoint solutions are so attractive because they do seem to work in so many different situations. But that does not mean they provide the ultimate solution because they are missing the most important elements. And that is what God says. Psychology is another human viewpoint solution. And if you do not start at the right point, you will never end up with the correct solution. Another observation. The people were not encouraged to clean up their own lives. You don't see any self-reformation here. You don't say, okay, get the broom out and start cleaning all the serpents out of your tents. Gather them all up. Get your little snake poles and go snake hunting. The solution to this is, is not a snake roundup. The people were not encouraged to clean up their lives. Fourth, they were not to solve the problem through one of our favorite solutions. No government action here. We did not establish a committee. We did not pass any legislation against snakes. We didn't call out the greenies, have an environmental impact statement as to just how these three million Jews have impacted the the environment here. And it's really their fault. They stirred up all the snakes and, you know, they're getting what they deserve, so they all ought to die. You know, long live the snake. I think that's the solution they used for those eastern diamondback rattlesnakes over in Hartford. Isn't that it? They're on the endangered species list, so let's not kill them. There's no direct cause and effect relationship here between the serpent bite and the solution. What we have is the voice of God saying, this is the issue. And remember what we looked at last week. God claims to be the one who has the right to define reality. Reality is not what we determine it is on the basis of rationalism or empiricism. Reality is what God says it is. When God created the heavens and the earth, and He's restoring them in Genesis chapter 1, and He separated the light from the darkness, He called the darkness night and the light day. The light and the darkness are day and night, not because they're day and night independently of God, but because God says that's what they are. We turn to Colossians chapter 2 verse 7, where it says, In Him, in Jesus Christ, is all knowledge and wisdom. That whatever you're going to say about anything in creation, if it doesn't start with what God says about it, then to some degree, it's going to be distorted and wrong. So God has the right here to say, look, this is an issue. In fact, this serpent might have been a, a creation of God for the very moment. It might not have been any normal serpent at all. God says, I have the right to, def- I am defining the problem, and I have the right to define the solution, and it is outside the boundaries of what? Rationalism and empiricism. It's based on my authority, and you respond by faith alone. So you are going to take the serpent, you're going to put it up on a pole and elevate it so that all that is required, anybody can look, anybody whatsoever. You don't have to have a high IQ to look at the snake. You don't have to be brought up in a Christian home to look at the snake. You don't have to have a religious background to look at the snake. Anybody can look at the snake on the pole. And there's another message here. The power of the snake is broken. The power of sin is broken. That's the subtext here in terms of typology because the serpent represents Satan and the serpent is crucified at the cross. His power is broken at the cross. There's all kinds of nuances to this. But the point is to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that the issue is faith. It is doing what God says to do. So let's turn back to John 3 and see how Jesus concludes it. Now that we understand the dynamics of the background, we can read the verse with understanding. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, in the same way, the Son of Man must be lifted up. Because the Son of Man, there's a comparison here. The analogy is between the serpent, who's a type of Satan. This is a very complicated typology here. We have the serpent, who is a representative of Satan, on the pole who is being compared to Christ. But what it speaks of, what it speaks of, is that the power of Satan is defeated at the cross. That's the point. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him shall have eternal life. And the point is, whoever believes in Him. We go back to the analogy. One of the major issues in theology throughout the centuries has been for whom did Christ die? The issue is called limited atonement or unlimited atonement. Now, if you to understand this, this is very important because it's based on this phrase, whosoever will. Unlimited atonement means Jesus died for every sin committed by every single human being throughout all of human history. He paid the price. He didn't just die for those who believe. He died for everybody. He, there's not exclusivity at the cross. He paid the price for every sin throughout all of human history. Whoever believes can have eternal life. Look at the analogy. Anybody in the camp of Israel, not just the ones who survived, but anyone bitten by the snake could look at the serpent on the pole. So the analogy is that anyone, that the solution is for not only anyone, but for everyone. That whoever believes, Notice it doesn't say believes and does good, believes and be baptized, believes and go to church every week, believes and gives their tithe every week. does not say any of that. Because it's faith alone that whoever believes might in him have eternal life. And the term for eternal life there is not just a ter- term for eternal existence. We've got two people here. We'll call them Joe and Bill. Joe's a believer. Bill's an unbeliever. They meet one day on Highway 2 in a head-on collision and they both die physically. Does anybody cease existing? No. Joe's a believer. He immediately is absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. But Bill goes to Hades, holding place until final judgment in the lake of fire. He's still existing, isn't he? He has, in one sense, eternal life. They both have eternal existence. When the Bible uses this phrase, eternal life, there is something more going on there than continuous, non-ending existence. The angels, the fallen angels, the unbelievers, everybody has continuous, non-ending existence. But up here, there is a quality of life. You don't get it when you die. You get it at the moment you put your faith alone in Christ alone. That whoever believes may in him, in Christ, we have a quality of life. Jesus said, I did not come like the thief to destroy, but I came to give life and to give life abundantly. See, a lot of people think, man, if I'm going to be a Christian, I've got to give up everything. So somehow I'm going to be in a position where I'm not going to enjoy life as I did when I was an unbeliever. But Jesus says, all that's going to change. I've come to give you abundant life. You're going to have life like you never could experience when you were an unbeliever. I didn't come to take it away. I came to give you more. And you're going to have abundant life. Well, this brings us to the whole issue of the extent of the atonement which I just want to cover very briefly. Let's look at a couple of passages. Turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verse 43. Acts 10:43. We're just going to look at two or three passages to make sure we understand how extensive this is in the scriptures. Acts 10:43. Peter is speaking to the Gentiles in the house of Cornelius. And he says, Of him, that is of Jesus Christ, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Everyone who believes. So that opens the door to any and all people. Let's turn over a couple of more books to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Not for the many, not for most, but for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their, their behalf. So it's clear that Jesus Christ died as a substitute for all mankind. And then just one last verse. There's so many that we can go to, but I just want to emphasize some of the key ones. Two more verses. Let's go to 1 Timothy 4.10. This is one of the most important. When I was a seminary student, this issue of the extent of the atonement was the hot button for every seminary student. There were two or three well-loved seminary professors who were some of the most academically inclined and best Greek professors who had become subverted by Calvinism and their... uh, back in the 70s, and so it became a major issue. You couldn't go anywhere in the city of Dallas with any seminary student without getting embroiled in a conversation involving Calvinism and the extent of the atonement and all of these issues. It's important to understand. I mean, we would sit around at lunch and we'd talk about it day in, day out. You'd think we'd have gotten bored, but we never did. 1 Timothy 4.10 It is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope. The Greek word has the idea of confident expectation. We have fixed our confident expectation on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. So there you have a distinction being made between all men and believers and he is the, Jesus Christ is said to be the savior of all men. And then one last verse, 1 John 2:2. 2, 2. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 which reads, And He, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins, that is, believers, and not for our sins only, but for the entire world. So that makes it clear that Jesus Christ died on the cross for every single human being so that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that brings us to the next verse, John three sixteen, the well-known verse where we will begin... Next Sunday morning, one of the interesting things is that somewhere in here between verse 12 and verse 22, Jesus stops speaking and John the Apostle starts commenting. Now the question is, when does that happen? I think it's here. I think at the end of verse 15, John starts giving us his uh, divinely inspired commentary and exegesis on what Jesus had just said. Verse 16 is an explanation by the Apostle John. Having thought about these things so late in his life as he's in his late 80s or early 90s, he then gives us his divinely inspired comments on what Jesus has said. And we'll begin there next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you so much for the clarity of your word, the clarity of the gospel, that the issue is not based on what we do, who we are, it's not based on any aspect of human ability or religious activity. Our eternal salvation is based on exclusively on everything you did for us at the cross. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is not sure of their eternal destiny, that right now, in the privacy of their soul, it's an issue that is between them and you. That right now they would say, Father, I trust in Jesus Christ alone for my salvation. It's not an issue of who you are. It's not an issue of what you've done. It's an issue of what Jesus Christ did and whether or not you accept that as a free gift. It is not earned or deserved. It is a free gift. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we thank You for the things that we have learned as we are confronted with the power of the authority of your word, that we must submit everything that we think, everything that we do to that authority on the basis of non-meritorious faith. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.